I really would encourage any of you, uh, if you have an interest or time uh, to participate in CityServe, Connie and Terry, along with Josh McQuaid, are doing beautiful things in the name of Jesus in our city, and uh, we would really love, uh, and we really need help. And so if you're able to do that, please uh, meet with them after the service. They'll be up front by the candle. I'm sorry, yeah. All right, sounds good. Uh, anyway, uh, if you have a Bible and you would like to follow along with me, you can do so by turning to 1 Peter chapter uh, 2. We're going to be looking at verses 4 through 8. You'll be able to find it on page 1014 and 1015 in your Pew Bible, or you can also just feel free to follow along with me in your bulletin if you'd like to do that. I do want to welcome you to Redeemer this morning. It's great to have you with us. My name is Sean Slade. I'm the pastor here, and we're really glad you're here because we know that there are a million different things that you could be doing this morning. For instance, you could be at home recovering from the flu. Uh, I know the flu is going around, and many people have actually caught it twice already, and so please be washing your hands, uh, please be getting rest, uh, and please be getting better. Uh, others of you, you could be at home uh, recouping from the Moon Taxi concert that a lot of people went to over the weekend. Others of you could be out on your sweetheart cruise on the Star of Knoxville Riverboat, which I know everyone has done over the weekend. You've taken your Valentine on a riverboat cruise uh, for brunch or for lunch. Uh, but y'all aren't doing those things. You're here. And so we're really glad uh, you're here. Thanks for coming. I do want to welcome you to Redeemer. What is Redeemer? Uh, Redeemer is a church. And what that means is that we're a community of people who are trying to learn how to love God and we're trying to learn how to love our neighbor. And fundamentally, what we believe is that Jesus is God, that he's the Messiah, and that he's entered into the world to die for our sins and to reveal the love of the Father. And so as his people, every week we gather together in worship so that we might learn to rest in the love that God has for us in Christ. And as we rest in that love, we then become a people who love getting together in community and spending time with one another and reading the Bible together and praying together so that we can remind each other of that great love that God has for us in Christ. And as we rest in his love and as we remind each other of his love, we then become a people who delight to gather together in service so that together we might reflect the love of God um, uh, to our family, to our friends, and to our neighbors that are here in Urban and University, Knoxville, and hopefully in some way, it would spill out into the entire world. That's who we are. People are trying to learn how to love God. We're trying to learn how to love our neighbor as we rest, as we remind, and as we reflect. And so to help us do that during this season of Epiphany, we've begun this new series going through the book of First Peter. And as we begin, I just want to remind you that epiphany means the showing forth or the manifestation. And it's this celebration that God's mission is going out into the world and that God in his kindness and in his mercy is drawing Gentile sinners into his family. And then he invites us to participate in his mission in this world. And as we come into his family and as we participate in his mission, we often find ourselves feeling like strangers in the world. Because as we come to Jesus, we often begin to have our lives turned upside down and we begin to engage the world in different ways. We think about ourselves in different ways. We think about the things we're doing. We value new things as we engage the world in light of Jesus. And oftentimes we feel like we are strangers in a strange land. And then we get confused by that. But one of the beautiful things about the Bible, and in particular the book of 1 Peter, is that Peter says you shouldn't be surprised. Because I have called you to myself that you would be strangers. 
that you would be exiles in this world as you wait for me to return. And so what we're doing over these next few months is we're thinking about being strangers in this strange land. And this morning, what I want us to consider is that Peter calls us these strange living stones, that we are these living stones. So with that in mind, let's look together at 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, we're going to begin at verse 4 and read down to verse 8. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me now for the teaching of it? Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you are a God who isn't hidden, nor are you silent, but you are at work. Uh, you are at work uh, in this world through your church, through your people. You are at work in your word by your Holy Spirit. And ultimately, you are at work in this world uh, through the person of Jesus. And it is our prayer now as we attend unto your word for these next few moments that you would attend unto us and that you would show us lovely things of who you are and of what you're doing. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You know, our secular uh, culture, one of the great assumptions about the church is that it is dying. Uh, if you were to read some headlines, uh, you would read these articles telling us how religion is the root of all of our political woes. You would read articles about how the church has lost its place in society. You would read articles asking this question, what should we do with America's empty church buildings or why no one wants to go to church anymore? And you would read these claims about all the other fulfilling things that people can do uh, with their weekends. But as you read these headlines, uh, reality doesn't quite match up to what is being proclaimed. And throughout all these articles, they're appealing to what sociologists have called the secularization hypothesis, which was a hypothesis that had been put forth years ago, stating that as the world became more and more educated and more and more advanced and more and more scientific, then religious belief would retreat because that is what has happened in Western Europe. And so the rest of the world ought to follow. But according to a recent Pew Forum study, uh, what they have concluded is that this hypothesis has actually failed. That even though in Western Europe and in American Christianity, we've seen a slight decline, uh, global Christianity is exploding. 
If you take China, for instance, in 2010, it was estimated that 5% of the population of China claimed to be Christian. That means that 68 million Chinese people claimed the name of Jesus. It is thought that as Christianity is spreading across China, it is believed that in 2030, there will be more Christians in China than there are in America. It is believed that by 2050, China will be a majority Christian country. Think about what that would do for the, for the formation of the world, right? Or think about Iran. In 1979, it was estimated that there were only 500 Christians in the entire country of a Muslim background. But today... There are hundreds of thousands of Christians throughout Iran and more and more of them are spreading out throughout the entire world as they seek refuge from hostile political environments. And it has been said by missiologists that the Iranian Christian church is the fastest growing movement of Christ in the world. Similar things are happening throughout Africa and all throughout the Southern Hemisphere. And here in the West, we're surprised. Right here in the West, we're surprised that a majority of the world does not want to follow us into our secularism. We're surprised that a majority of the world is not impressed with us and that other countries have found that our vision of a secular society is lacking vision and is insufficient. That our secular society is not providing the community and the meaning and the freedom that it promised, nor that humanity actually longs for. In those secularism, in those secularism though I think this is debated, uh, might be growing throughout the West, uh, the world is telling us that it does not give humanity what we were made for. And in the West, we're surprised by this. In the West, we still tend to think that other cultures ought to follow our lead, that other countries ought to come up to speed with us. And if they did, then they would just get it. If they would just follow our lead, then they would care about the important things that we actually care about. And they would see the foolishness of our religious background and they would begin to enjoy the utopia that we enjoy. But we've got to be honest about these visions of who we are as a Western secular society. It is cultural snobbery that we put forth. Because why do we think that cultures around the world could not look at our culture and evaluate it for themselves and see the emptiness that they see within us? And so in order to continue to promote our secular vision of the world, article after article after article is getting printed about the churches being empty and young people disappearing from the church. And yet that has never been my experience. I mean, I became a Christian at Clemson University. Hundreds of us in a Bible study, 50 of my classmates in my Bible study, we all went to seminary together. I think about having pastored at the University of Virginia through RUF as a campus minister at the University of Virginia uh, for 10 years. The hundreds, thousands over the 10 years of students who came and participated in the ministry that we were doing. I think about coming here and pastoring here at Redeemer and all the students who love to call Redeemer home. 
who love to walk through the fort and kind of come in and worship among us. I think about my friends that I get to pastor with, Matt Howell and Catherine Howell and Walker Rose and McKenna Breedlove and Shelly Scott and Laura Owen, who are all doing amazing, beautiful things at the University of Tennessee. I think of all of our young life friends who are among us and the work that they're doing with students throughout the high schools. And just this week here at uh, Redeemer, we had the privilege of hosting RUF. And this sanctuary was filled with college students. As Matt Howell is preaching about Christ from the book of Ecclesiastes and hundreds of college students are uniting their voices together, singing nothing but the blood of Jesus. It is amazing. It is beautiful. It is exciting to see that which God is doing in this world and it bore no resemblance to the articles that have been published. And if you just think about CityServe and the work that Connie and Terry and Josh and others of you who are joining with them are doing, if you join them, you see the life of the church, the life of God within us going out to serve our neighbors. Recently, um, Nicholas Kristof, uh, an author with the New York Times, Pulitzer Prize winner, human rights activist, he wrote this. If you go to the front lines at home or abroad, in the battles against hunger, malaria, prison rape, human trafficking, or genocide, some of the bravest people that you will ever meet are evangelical Christians who truly live their faith. And the reality is that there would be no public education in this country if it was not for the church. There would be no hospitals or orphanages or shelters if it was not for the church. And it is the Christian worldview and the social imaginary of the church that gave rise to human rights in the, throughout the West. And the reality is this, that secularism is borrowing and enjoying the fruit of Christianity while cutting it off at its roots. And so here's what I'm trying to say to you. Christianity is not dead. The church is not dead. In fact, it is very alive. And it is alive because our God has died and has risen. And our God is working his life into his people as he knits us together and sends us out throughout the world. Now, I know that the church is an easy target. The church is an easy thing to critique because as a church, uh, we hurt people. As a church, we fail people. Uh, the church is filled with people who are broken and who are hurting and are sinners. And the church invites broken, hurting, sinful people to be among us. And broken, sinful people, we hurt one another. We've been blind in the past. Uh, we probably are blind today and we don't even know what we do not see. Uh, but we've been complicit to injustice, we've been complicit in racism, uh, but our failures are not the problem of God. Our failures are our problems. Our failures are that we fail to fully commit ourselves to who we are in Jesus. The problem is not Christianity. The problem is that we need to become more fully Christian the problem is not the church. The problem is that we need to be more fully the church. And that's what I want us to think about this morning. Who are we? What is the church? I want us to think about these strange living stones that Peter uh, calls us, that we are the church, right? 
The great missiologist, Leslie Newbigin, once wrote, it is a well-established fact that the great majority of those who come to faith in Christ come through the witness of a local congregation. Here in the midst of a world of illusions is the place where truth is spoken and celebrated, where God is praised and thanked, where God's grace is given and received to be poured out in care for the neighborhood. Here is where we learn to live in the story that the Bible tells, to affirm it as our own story and to see our contemporary world in light of the true story. Here is where we can learn to question the assumptions that are taken for granted in the world outside, where we can develop a certain godly skepticism regarding the things that are praised and celebrated in our societies. The local congregation is the only effective hermeneutic of the gospel. And what Newbegin is saying is that the church is the storyteller. If you want to know God, you must come into his church. If you want to know God, you must come and dwell among his people. The church is the storyteller, the true storyteller about the way the world is and about who our God is. And what is the story that the church is telling us? It tells us who we are. And it tells us that we are not alone. It tells us who we are and that we are not alone. As you go through 1 Peter, I just want you to notice it tells us who we are. Verse 5, we are living stones. And what is amazing about being called a living stone is that in verse 4, Jesus is the living stone. And so what Peter is telling us is that when you come to Jesus by faith, what is true of Jesus is now true of you. That the righteousness of Jesus, that the obedience of Jesus, that the obedience and the inheritance of Jesus, that the love of the Father for our elder brother Jesus, those things are now ours. So that now by faith in Jesus, I am righteous. By faith in Jesus, I am now holy. By faith in Jesus, I am now a dearly loved son or daughter of God. And not only that, it is the resurrection, of, uh, resurrection life of Jesus that is now ours. It's at work in us. That though I will die, I will rise. Because Jesus died and Jesus rose. And it's not only about the eternal parts of our lives, it is also about here and now, that the life of Jesus is at work in me so that I am now resurrected. I'm no longer dead to God, but I am alive to him. That he's working his life into me such that I might rest in his love, that I might be reminded of his love so that I might begin to reflect his love throughout the world. And just as Jesus's life was accepted as a sacrificial death, so too now our lives are accepted as spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus. And so here's the point. What is true of Jesus is now true of us by faith. You can think about it this way. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, my daughter needed to get dinner. And she was taking my son and his friends out for dinner. But the problem was that my daughter... 
uh, is just a young, dumb, broke high school kid. That's a song that I'm quoting. She's not, she's young, she's broke, but she's not dumb. But the song is young, dumb, broke high school kid. But anyway, um, uh, and so, uh, so she, she has nothing to her name. And so what I do is I give her my credit card that has my name on it. And when she has my credit card with my name on it, all of my resources are now hers. All of my resources are now hers. And that's what Peter is saying. Everything that is Jesus's by faith is now yours. And so Jesus is the living stone. Therefore, when you come to him by faith, you too are a living stone. Now, this living stone imagery is uh, an image that you may or may not be familiar with, but it is an image that is rooted deep in the Old Testament. Uh, You see it in Psalm 118, where the psalmist is talking about the cornerstone that has been laid and that people trip upon it and they fall to their destruction. And yet it is also the cornerstone that has been laid and those who embrace it find salvation. Later on in Isaiah chapter 8 and Isaiah chapter 28, the prophet is critiquing the people of God because they're dead to him. They're not living for him. They're ignoring him. And so they seek to make a name for themselves in this world rather than a name for God. And the leaders are oppressing the people of God. Injustice has taken root in the people of God. Immorality has gripped the people of God. Even the priests have begun to bow before other gods and they've neglected God's word. And in their arrogance, they said, there is no judgment. And the prophet says to them, behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a precious stone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And what he was saying was, look, I have laid a stone and those who stumble upon it stumble to their destruction. Those who receive it find refuge in it. They are the ones who will be saved. And that passage was seen as messianic. And the reason we know that it was messianic is because that was the tradition that the Jews had. They saw this as a messianic one and that was shown through the way they translated the passage in the Septuagint. The Septuagint is a later Greek translation of the Hebrew. And if you read through the Septuagint, the Septuagint is actually what Peter follows in our passage. And so when Peter is quoting this passage, he says, whoever believes in him, the stone that was laid is the Messiah. And whoever believes in him, the text says, will not be put to shame. And so the point of this passage was that God's judgment was going to come and that his judgment would come through the Messiah and that salvation as well would come through the Messiah and your judgment or your salvation would depend upon how you responded to the Messiah. Now, what was fascinating, if you continue to read on through the Bible, you'll see that Jesus takes up this stone imagery As Jesus is going about his ministry, he begins to tell a parable about some tenants who had rejected and killed the son of the master of the vineyard. And Jesus says that those who rejected and killed the son, they will be cast out of the vineyard and they will be destroyed. And then do you know what he does? He quotes this passage as if to say, I am the stone. And you must respond 
to me. As you continue to read the Bible, we begin to see Peter taking up this image. And so Peter takes up this image as well, as if to say, just as those Old Testament uh, people who did not believe the word of God and stumbled upon God, right, and found themselves cast out and rejected by God, so those who stumble on Christ and reject his word, verse 8, they will be rejected. But all who receive him will be saved. It's a lot. I just did a lot. I understand. It's thick. But here's the point. Jesus is everything. And your response to him determines your life and your destiny. He is saying that Jesus is the key to all of human history. And to understand the world in any other way is to misunderstand this world. And to misunderstand him has eternal consequences. And so like a cornerstone of a building that gets laid and sets the angles for the building, which then sets the destiny of the building, so too the Bible is saying Jesus is that cornerstone setting the angles and setting the contours of this world and its outcome. I love the way uh, Karen Jobes uh, says it. She says, the rejection of Christ does not make him go away, but in fact, it has ultimate consequences. Christ is laid across the path of humanity on its course into the future. In the encounter with him, each person is changed, one for salvation, another for destruction. One cannot simply step over Jesus to go on about their daily routine and pass him by to build a future. Whoever encounters him is inescapably changed through the encounter. Either one sees and becomes a living stone or one stumbles as a blind person over Christ and comes to ruin, falling short of one's creator and redeemer and thereby of one's destiny. And so what she's saying is that your response to Jesus matters. And when you engage him, you will be changed. And what is the destiny that God has for humanity? What is it that God is doing in this world? Well, in our passage, what we see is that he is building a new temple. He's building a new temple. You see this in verse five. You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. And this temple that God is building is not a temple made with brick and mortar. It is a temple that is made up of God's people whom he is building upon Christ. And so the church is telling us that we belong to God. The church is telling us that Jesus is the meaning of all history. And the church is telling us that we are not alone. That God is with us. That's the point of a temple, right? Temples were the dwelling place, the house of God. 
And what God is doing is he is drawing us to himself and he's knitting us together to be a temple or to be a dwelling for himself. I mean, think briefly with me about temples. Temples are these thin spots or these hot spots where heaven and earth come together. And in the beginning, as you know, God made the heavens and the earth. And when he made the heavens and the earth, he made this garden. And that garden was a type of temple. The garden was where heaven and earth came together. It's where God came and walked with man and dwelt with humanity. But when Adam and Eve sinned against God, they're kicked out of the temple. They're kicked out of the garden. But in God's kindness, he wanted to continue what he had created. He wanted to continue to be near to his people. He wanted heaven and earth to come near to one another. And so God constantly drew near to his people, meeting with them at the altar, leading them through the cloud of smoke and through the pillar of fire, meeting them at the tabernacle, until the people of God gathered together and we built the house of God in Jerusalem on the mountain. And that house of God was filled with the glory of God. We read all about this in the Old Testament. But that temple was never meant to be the end. The temple was always meant to prepare God's people for God's presence. Because God didn't really want his presence to be limited to a building. He didn't want it limited to a particular space. As in the garden, God wanted his presence to fill the earth. And so as redemptive history progressed, we see Jesus coming and living among us. We call it his incarnation. He came in the flesh to dwell with humanity. And God now is walking with us on the earth once again, just as he had done in the garden. Which is why in the gospel of John, in chapter 1, verse 14, we read, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And the word dwelt is the Greek word tabernacled. That Jesus, that God tabernacled among us, alluding again to the temple. And therefore the temple was with us, the tabernacle was with us and that's why the glory of God was now dwelling upon us. But even that temple, right, the Old Testament temple, it gave way to the person. And then what we see in redemptive history is that Jesus ascends into heaven. Jesus ascended from this earth into the heavenly temple. And when he entered into the heavenly temple, do you remember what he did? We talked about it a little bit last week. He pours out his Holy Spirit to make us his children, to grant us repentance. And that same spirit that he gathered from the holy temple, the heavenly temple, he pours out to build an earthly new temple. A temple not made with brick and mortar, but a temple that is made up of God's people, living stones being knit together to fill the earth. And that temple is what we call the church as the church takes up little residences throughout the earth, as the church goes out in mission throughout the earth, the presence of God goes with us and dwells with us. That's a lot. Why would Peter tell them this? Why would Peter write to this group of people? Why would he tell us this? 
Well, think about to whom Peter's writing. He's writing to refugees. He's writing to exiles who feel forgotten and alone. He's writing to a people who are experiencing rejection from their neighbors, uh, social and financial and various other trials that he speaks of throughout the book. And it would have been easy for all of them to feel like insignificant, to feel forgotten, to feel forsaken. Could you imagine reading this? You're the dwelling of God. And what he is saying is, oh, little church, you think you're nothing. You think you're forgotten. You think you're insignificant but you are everything to the Father. You are incredibly valuable to him. It reminds me of maybe my favorite game show, uh, the Antiques Roadshow. I don't know if any of you have seen the Antiques Roadshow on the PBS, Uh, but if you've seen it, you probably remember that at the Antiques Roadshow, what would happen is that people bring in their old stuff right? And people come in and they're all proud. You know, they've got their stuff and they like, hey, look what I got. And they're like, it's not worth anything. And they're like, oh, that stinks. I'm ashamed. Put me on television. And then, uh, but other people bring their old stuff, right? And uh, it's just old to them. They don't know much about it and think maybe somebody could tell me about it and they bring it in. Well, a few years ago, there was a guy named uh, Ted Kuntz from Tucson, Arizona, who brought in an old blanket, And this blanket was a blanket that had been given to his mother from her foster father. And uh, supposedly, he didn't know, but the story went that this blanket had come from Kit Carson. And the blanket had just sort of been passed down from his mother uh, to him. And he loved the blanket and it just sat on a chair in his bedroom and he thought it was great. And so he brought it in because he wanted to show it off. And he thought that because it had maybe come from Kit Carson, it might be worth something. And so as soon as he brings in this blanket, the auctioneer sees it and is amazed at what he sees. Not because it was Kit Carson's blanket, but because he sees this beautiful fabric. He sees this beautiful, tap, you know, this beautiful tapestry, this beautiful textile that he's amazed by. And he says to Ted, he says, do you know what you have here? This is the most significant thing that has ever come on this show. Do you know what it's worth? And Ted says, I have, I have no idea. I mean, we're just poor farmers. We don't have anything. My mother was an orphan. Her foster father gave her this blanket. We're just farmers. We're not that special. It can't be that significant. And the auctioneer said, you have a piece of American history. This blanket is easily worth $500,000. And then after the show, it was valued at over a million. This little blanket sitting in his bedroom on the back of a chair. Ted takes off his glasses. He's crying. He can't believe us. And he's like, I can't believe it. We're not special people. It was just sitting on the chair. And what God is saying to us as his people, you may not think you're that special. Other people might not think you're that special. You might think that you're insignificant and overlooked, but you are God's people. You are the household of God who have been bought with his blood. And the trials that you endure 
are not a sign of God's rejection. They are a sign that you belong to him. The world had rejected them because it had rejected him. And Peter is saying, but that is not the case for you. Because you have come to me. And you are mine. And when you come to me, you will never be put to shame. But you will be raised up in honor. And think about how that transforms everything you're doing. What he's saying is that your labor for God is not in vain. Everything that you do for him, every spiritual act of service, every spiritual act of worship, every act of love, every act of honesty, every interaction in care, every perseverance through trial and suffering, everything that you do in his name that seems insignificant and unimportant and unknown, everything that you do that you think will vanish in the of history, everyone who thinks they are ignored because of Christ, everyone who thinks that they do not matter, every institution that thinks that it does not matter, it matters to the Father. And just as Christ, who is the living stone, committed himself to the Father and was faithful all the way to the cross, and at the cross, his life seemed insignificant. And at the cross, it seemed to end in failure and rejection. But on the third day, his life was raised up in honor and in glory because he was precious to the Father. And so to you, as you come to Christ, the living stone, and as you offer your life to him, all that you do in his name, it too will be raised up in honor because you are precious in his sight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we are yours. We thank you that you are building us together and we pray that our labor would not be in vain, but it would be raised up in glory. It would be precious in your sight and it would be fruitful for the good of this world as we reflect you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.